Hey everybody, welcome to the show. My name is Tudor Alexander and this is the Dance of Life podcast. This is part eight of the Once Saved, Always Saved series. We're talking about predestination in the parables of Jesus. So if you haven't tuned in in the last episodes, we talked about things like total depravity, God doing the work through irresistible grace, and basically throughout history, coming to people that he ch- he's chosen you know, to save the elect and working in their lives despite their doubt, despite their fear, despite their failures throughout many cases throughout the Bible. We talked about predestination of both good and evil. We talked about the elect, how that's a teaching throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and obviously revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. We talked about the reprobate, which are people who God chose to pass over, who he did not save. The wicked, right, that are created for the day of destruction and they have their own purpose. We Last episode, we talked about the incarnation and how every aspect of Christ's life on earth was predestined. You know, we went through multiple examples in scripture. We also talked about how we're being conformed to the image of Christ, how we were made in the image of God. And obviously Adam was the, a type of the one to come. So we were, this whole predestination of God being in us, being conformed to the image of Christ with the spirit in us and having our own bodies, but at the same time being vessels that God is acting through, that whole reality was predestined. And that's very visible by studying the incarnation of Jesus. So we looked at that in the last episode. In the one before that, we talked about the predestination of evil, which was a very long episode. So (laughs) I encourage you to listen to that one in, in chunks, but there's so much information. We looked at various books of the Bible, like the book of Job, book of Ezekiel, um, you know, countless scriptures in how God takes ownership of everything that happens, both the good and the bad. And, and sorry, there's a motorcycle just running around in my neighborhood all the time. He, he takes credit for the good and the bad that happens in history. And every time he does so, he does so with a purpose. There's a, there's a purpose behind everything that happens. And, and so all this stuff that we've been talking about we have a couple more episodes that I have planned in this series. This episode is talking about the parables of Jesus. And then the next episode, I'm going to talk about various questions that come up for people that are struggling with this idea of predestination and election. So I'm just going to go through a bunch of frequently asked questions. And after that, the final episode, I don't know how long that one's going to be. Maybe it's going to be another really long episode. But either way, that one I've devoted to strictly objections. So challenge verses that seem to question eternal security or seem to question that you can lose your salvation, um, you know, or seem to teach that, you know, it's up to us in some way to choose to have faith and then we're saved, that kind of thing. So all those are coming up, but this is pretty much the last, you know, where we kind of put all these together through the very words of Jesus himself, through his parables. And I think parables are fascinating. Uh, You know, they're so interesting because they give us a glimpse into the mind of God. You know, everything that Jesus talked about, He talked in parables, right? He was teaching in parables, and that was for one reason because the the elect would understand, the people who needed to understand would understand, and the people who hated him, right, the Pharisees, the people who were reprobate, would just hate him even more. They wouldn't understand. He was sort of concealing things in plain sight in a way. And another thing for us believers today that's important with parables is their proof of everything we've been talking about, right? So this is not, I hope that if you have tuned in in the last several episodes, you see that 
I, I've done a, I've done my best to be as as thorough as possible with this topic and to, to provide you with as much scripture as possible that these things are not things that are we're making up, right? So to, to have eternal security in your salvation, to believe in irresistible grace, that it takes an act of God to change the human heart. And when it when that happens, you can't undo that, right? To believe that there is an elect that God has chosen and there's people that he's chosen not to save. All these things are very biblically sound and they're very established. And so parables are just another layer of proof for that, as hopefully you'll soon see. And again, we can see the mind of God because parables are like metaphors. They're like living metaphors of of things that happen. So a metaphor, like when you when you compare something to something else, right? It's a static picture. But the thing that's really interesting about parables is, you know, things there's multiple things being represented and they're interacting with one another. So it's sort of like this living picture, which is, I think, just super fascinating. So there's so much to talk about parables. Generally, parables are about the kingdom of heaven, right? The coming kingdom of heaven, the final judgment. There's a lot of themes revolving around the kingdom. And most people who study parables will agree that they are teaching some lesson about the kingdom, whether it's the coming kingdom at the final judgment or the, you know, the, the growth of the kingdom of heaven from when Christ came to, to that point in time. So we're going to look at over 13 parables uh, with, with what we're doing today. There are way more parables than that. I've just chosen to select 13 that are pretty prominent. And there's three categories that we're going to look at. And we're just going to read them. We'll, we'll chit chat about them. But I just want you to see how these things you know, it's not just one parable that that seems to teach about election and we're kind of reading into it. No, there's multiple parables, over a dozen parables that teach things like the elect and the reprobate, right? So people God's chosen and people who he hasn't chosen to save. Um, finding what was lost, that's another theme, which is also, again, election. If If something was lost, then it was yours to begin with. Right, so there's a whole series of parables with that, and then there's this whole idea of distinguishing between real faith and and fake faith, or or having a sense of authentic faith, and and even to the point where it's encouraging the elect, the people who God has chosen, remind them to participate. So remember, you know, we talked about this in the last episode with the incarnation, where everything about Christ's life was predestined. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. You know, life is predestined. God predestined good and evil to happen for all for a very definite purpose. Yet, despite all these things, we are encouraged to participate in life. We are encouraged to work out our salvation, right, with fear and trembling. We're encouraged to be zealous and repent. We're encouraged all these things to, to take life by the horns, so to speak, to take the gift that we've been given and to really move forward with that. So, you know, it, it's not about having this defeatist attitude that, oh, things are predestined, well, I'm just not going to do anything. Well, that's not true either. And this is where the difference between Arminianism, which again is is the belief or the, the theology or philosophy, that free will is the factor in salvation, right? Christ died and it's up to your free will to choose to have faith in that so that you can be saved, and again, there's so many implications with that, one of them being open theism, which is a heresy. But besides that, 
Armenians try to draw a line between where God's sovereignty is and where our sovereignty, let's put it that way, where our free will is. Here's our free will and here's God's, you know, control over everything. And there's a line between it. But the problem is as soon as you try to draw that line and delineate between the two, you put God in a box. You see how that works? This is the major error because as soon as you say, well, here's the line. God, you know, Jesus died for our sins, but we still have to choose. So it's up to us to, to basically choose to have faith. Well, now you're saying that people can lose their salvation because they can choose to stop having faith. And that means that God isn't able to keep those who he died for saved, which is completely contradictory to scripture. And it doesn't make sense with the God that we know from the Bible, who is completely sovereign. So there's a lot of implications to that, whereas people who subscribe to predestination, election, eternal security, and of course, you know, the main word for that is Calvinism. I don't really believe in everything that Calvin believed in. I believe in the five points of Calvinism, but I don't believe in everything that Calvin taught. There's there's other things not related to salvation that Calvin believed in that I don't subscribe to. So I'm not attached to Calvinism, Arminianism. They are the two points that we've been bringing up to represent these perspectives. But you can believe in predestination and not label yourself a Calvinist. But the point is this. If if you believe in predestination and all the things we've been talking about, election, eternal security, reprobation, all that stuff, ultimately what you acknowledge is that there's a mystery, right? The incarnation is a pure example of that. Christ was fully God and fully human. His life was predestined. And yet he still lived moment by moment. He laughed, he wept, he sang songs, he ate with people, he had a good time, he suffered. He lived moment by moment. He lived his life out. And so there's a mystery there of of how do we reconcile those two, and that's a mystery. Again, Scripture tells us to participate in life. God invites us to participate and to do so, you know, with with 100% effort. And yet we're reminded that we can't fail because life is predestined, that we've been chosen to be saved, that we can't lose our salvation. So there's that, you know, assurance of salvation. So don't draw a line between it is the point. And as you'll see with these parables, these things reinforce the, the continual teachings that, that, again, it's like there's a duality, and not that there's duality in a mystical sense, but there, there are two perspectives that are complementary with each other. One of them being participate in life and, and go for it, live your life, you've been given life, use it to bear fruit, serve the Lord, worship the Lord, you know, be part of this life. And on the other hand, it's life has been predestined. God is in complete control of everything that happens. And that, to me, is the dance of life. That is the, the dance between these two things. We, we exist in both, in a sense, in, the, in that we live our lives moment by moment. And, you know, me speaking on, on the microphone, looking at the camera, talking to you right now, this is a moment by moment thing. I'm not aware of what's going to happen. I have a plan in front of me of what I'm going to talk about, but I'm just going with it. And so are you when you're listening to it. So are you when you go home and you eat and you live your life moment by moment. And yet at the same time, reality as a whole, 
When you look in retrospect, it is crazy how it all came together and how it's all coming together, especially now in the end times. So this is the life we live, and it's a very fascinating thing. And and those who believe in predestination do not draw a line between these two things. We acknowledge it's a mystery. But in acknowledging it's a mystery, you leave room for God to be God, to be the sovereign that he is in the Bible. When you refuse something like, well, I can't accept that God predestined evil, so I'm going to try to rescue God with philosophy and come up with all these hodgepodge ideas, you lead yourself into robbing glory from God by you being charged in salvation or losing your salvation that robs glory from God because he can't keep you saved. You create an inconsistency in the Trinity because Christ died for everybody and yet there's people in hell that, he, that rejected him or there will be, I should say, because I don't believe in eternal torment, but there's people that rejected Christ that Christ knew would reject them and yet he died for them anyway even though the Father didn't choose them. That doesn't make any sense. There's an inconsistency in the Trinity, right? And at the at the worst, right, and I should say they're all pretty bad, but another terrible point with all this is that it leads you into a works-based mentality. If you can lose your salvation, if you can do something to affect your eternal state status, then what does that mean? That means that ultimately you have to work to maintain your status. And nobody can answer the question of when do you lose your salvation? At what point? Does scripture say, okay, if you've committed X amount of sins or this sin, you've lost your salvation? No. So this is this is the fundamental error that they and you look at all the religions in the world, the pagan religions, even the, the Christian denominations that are, you know, heresies, Mormonism, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, they're all works based. New Age. It's a workspace system. The personal growth development movement, that's a workspace system. It's all based on works, and, and works are fundamentally based on the idea of free will. See how that works together? If you have free will and you can choose, and then it's up to you to make the right choice. You have to choose between what's good and evil. You can be like God. <laughs> that's the lie of the Garden of Eden, is this whole free will illusion. Because with free will comes all kinds of things, one of them being that you have to work for it, that it's not God who's doing the work. And Christians today who, who really believe in free will, and they don't realize the history of that belief. The people who wrote the Bible did not believe in libertarian free will. Jesus did not preach libertarian free will. God never taught libertarian free will, never said that he created us with a, an ability to choose free of influence. Even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, Adam did not choose the fruit free of influence. He was influenced by his wife. Eve did not choose the fruit free of influence. She was influenced by the snake who played to all her weaknesses. Right? And so there was that was the whole point that God was illustrating through the Garden of Eden. The cross was always predestined. So... It was predestined for mankind to fall, but the point was to show that, listen, even if you have a completely innocent environment, a perfect environment without any trauma, no upbringing, God created Adam and Eve. They didn't have parents to argue with or, you know, brothers and sisters. I mean, they were blank slates with human nature. And unless God inhabits the vessels that he created through his Holy Spirit, 
the vessels will break down and fall, which is what happened. So Jesus had a human nature, which is what Adam and Eve had before the fall. He didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have a fallen nature because he wasn't guilty and he didn't sin. Adam and Eve had a human nature, but because the spirit wasn't in them, because that wasn't, there was no legal precedent for that yet. The cross had to happen and everything leading up to the cross and all that, you know, all the prophecies and everything that happened was all predestined to give the legal precedent for God to inhabit his creation. That was the plan all along. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. But Adam and Eve didn't have the spirit. And so their human nature quickly became corrupt because Satan, who represents the ego, who represents the free will illusion, played to that part of human nature. Human nature was self-aware. And with self-awareness comes the danger of ego, comes the danger of believing your God that you have to choose. That It's this illusion of the first-person perspective. And so we get so caught up in it. Today, when we read the Bible 2000, that was written over 2,000 years ago, that we read that perspective into the scriptures. We read free will, libertarian free will, which is, a, which is birthed primarily out of the Enlightenment, you know, out of the French Revolution and all the philosophy that, that happened since then, out of capitalism, out of the American Revolution. All that stuff is just Luciferian stuff dressed up as, you know, philosophy and, and virtue, but it's really not. Free will leads to rebellion. It leads to this self-godhood. All the things that are based on works, all the things that teach about self-godhood, self-divinity, ascending, moving towards, you know, taking your own destiny by your hand, all that is based on free will. If you believe in predestination, that God, who is perfect, is in control of everything, and he's steering it regardless of what happens, then that's incompatible with all of these things. All of these things cave, they fall, they're like a house of cards because they're incompatible with predestination. And that's the point. So you have to ask yourself, if the majority of the world who is at war with Christ believes in this whole idea of free will and basically, you know, we have to choose, is it really the truth? We know who the God of this world is right now. It's not Jesus, not yet. I mean, Jesus is in control. He's sovereign. But the God of this world is the devil. And he's about to put on his greatest show ever. It's going to be based around the idea of free will. So anyway, not to spiral off into all kinds of tangents, but I wanted to focus on 13 parables. And again, there's three different themes. So the first theme, we're just going to just jump into it, is about the elect and the unelect. And the first and the second kind of are the same. So the second is about finding what was lost. But there's so many great parables that we'll go into. And so the first one is the parable of the sower. So I'm just going to read the parable and then we'll we'll just chat about it. So the parable of the sower is in Matthew 13 and it's verses 1 through 9. So it goes like this. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them, 
Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And so, you know, in this parable we see so much, and he goes on to explain that the the seed is the word of God, basically, and there's a metaphor for that throughout the Bible. I mean, there's so many metaphors of fruit and seeds and trees being spiritual in nature. And this parable to me is, it's such a fascinating parable, like all of them, really. But the first thing that it shows is unconditional election, right? If you want to think of the sower, the who is the sower? The sower is Christ. The seeds are the people, the word of the, the, word of the Lord that goes into different hearts, right? Different soil is, is representative of different hearts. Some people just don't even receive the word, right? The birds come and get it. That's Satan that takes the word, snatches away from them as soon as they receive it. Some people receive the word when, you know, when they get it, but then it doesn't sprout any roots. And so when the sun comes, which is tribulation and suffering, they gets, the word gets scorched up. They, they lose faith. That's the great falling away that's prophesied to happen at the end of the age. People don't have sound scriptural foundations. And so as soon as, you know, any kind of suffering comes along, they give up. I know plenty of people like that, right? And you do too, and you see them all around you. Those are those are the false converts. That's why when you say once saved, always saved, it's not about being, you know, claiming you're a Christian or claiming you're saved. That doesn't make you saved. There's a lot of false converts, and that's the whole point. That's one of the major points we'll talk about in the final episode on challenge verses. But I mentioned it in the very beginning too. You know, just because you claim to be saved doesn't mean you're actually saved. And there's some parables that we'll, we'll review about that. But when here's the thing. When Christ sowed the seeds, he's not looking in his bag and saying, okay, this seed is going to make, you know, this one's going to be prosperous. This one's not going to be prosperous. That shows unconditional election. When you reach into a bag and you throw seeds, you're not paying attention to what this, what seeds you're picking out. You're just taking out seeds and you're throwing them right? Now, we don't understand unconditional election because it's impossible for us to make an unconditional choice. The world around us is by default conditional. You can't decide to do anything without a condition of some kind, whether it's internal or external in the world. But this parable shows us history in a nutshell, if you really think about it that way, right? The majority of people, so in this parable, if we just go by numbers, only 25% of the, the seeds bore fruit. You know, the other a quarter of them got choked by weeds. The other one, the quarter got uh, taken by the birds. And the other quarter got scorched by the sun. So basically, Satan <laughs> deceived people. Tribulation caused the great falling away. And the other ones got distracted by worldly comforts and success. And we talked about the evils of success in the episode on evil a couple couple weeks ago. Evil is just as, or sorry, success can be just as evil as failure and evil and all these other things. And so we have to redefine our concept of what is evil. And it's obvious from the parable of the sower that, that success is just as evil. So 25% of the people in this parable, if we're talking about just outlining who's saved and who's not, most people are not saved. Now, can you look through history, and is that an accurate picture of reality? Now, I would say yes. Now, I don't know if it's exactly you know 25%, but it is true that the majority of people born, lived, and died in history were not saved. 
the majority of people were not saved. A minority of people will be saved when all is said and done. There have been billions and billions of people on the planet, and, or plane, I should say, because I don't believe in heliocentrism, but there's been billions of billions of people. Only a small percentage of those people were actually saved. Now, we don't know. Again, we don't know who God chooses to show mercy to, but it's it. this parable illustrates a point. It illustrates, first off, that the seeds were unconditionally chosen. And based on how things were created for God's infinite purpose and infinite wisdom, not more people were lost than saved. Okay? And this is the thing that we have to keep in mind, is that the reprobate have a purpose. Now, in this parable, there's also a warning, right? There's a warning for us who are believers to have authentic faith, to have genuine faith in the sense that, you know, are you letting the cares of the world strangle you? Are you attached to the world? Are you, you know, allowing your desire for comfort to be more important than your desire for Christ? If persecution scares you or, you know, being, witnessing the gospel, you know, makes you uncomfortable, of course, some of those things are normal to some extent. But ultimately, if, if you're more worried about the world's consequences than you are about Christ, that's an indicator that, you know, you have to readdress your faith. And that's what this whole parable is about. It's about faith. And so it shows unconditional election. That's very clear. Who is picking in the bag and throwing? It's Christ. Christ is the one that throws the seeds. On a greater level, who's making the seeds grow? He sustains the world the world by the word of his power. Right? And so it's showing all these themes of election. Some seeds <laughs> were just not going to make it from the very beginning. Now let's look at the next one, which is the wheat and the tares, which is in Matthew 13, Uh, verses 24 through 30. All these paint a different picture. And when you look at all of them together, you'll see a really nice mosaic of the truth, of all the things we've been talking about. The parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Here we go again. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest... And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this is obviously about a couple things. First off, it's about the end of the age, right? Where the, A lot of Christ's parables were about the final judgment. What's happening at the final judgment? There's a harvest. The elect are being ushered into the kingdom of God. The wicked are bundled up and burned in the lake of fire. So that's a pretty clear, you know, representation in this parable. But again, it's it's that whole idea of there's good seed that was sown, and then there's bad seed that was sown. Christ called the Pharisees children of the devil, 
right? Their father is the devil. Now, does that mean to read into it like biologically in this whole serpent seed thing? No. And that's that's a whole other study that I want to do in detail because it's nonsense. But what does it actually mean? No, spiritually, just like we have a father as Christians, as believers, their father was the devil. He He's their spiritual father, right? They, they were never chosen to be saved because their lot is with the devil. And the devil was sinning from the beginning, right? 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? Well, the, the devil planted his own seed when he tempted Eve in the garden. Remember, the devil wants to be God. He always wanted to be God. He always wanted obedience. He wanted worship. And by planting that seed, part of it is this whole idea of free will, that you can be your own God, that you have to choose. He planted a seed and led to mankind being cursed and put in a fallen world. And now death rules the world, and through death the devil obtained worship because now death motivates everything that we do. That's why when Christ came and he said that he overcame the world, it's because he overcame the greatest idol that we ever had as a, as a species, which is death. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. We don't have to worship death indirectly by having all this anxiety and structuring our lives around when we're going to die, if we're going to die, aging, decaying. It just consumes our decisions. But that was the works of the devil, and he planted that seed. And he also planted other false seeds, right? He does counterfeits of everything. When, when God reveals the truth, the devil plants a counterfeit word, a counterfeit faith, a counterfeit gospel. There's so many today. The word of faith, prosperity movement, the new age gospel, the workspace gospel that the Mormons and Catholics have. Those are all false gospels. The tolerance gospel, you know, peace and love and ecumenism and, and unity with all the religions under the guise of, of some general love, but at the cost of truth. All those are fake, fake gospels. That's Satan's word. Satan's seed, right? He planted that seed. And, and the, those who were going to be of him, who God predestined, remember, were going to be of him. Those are the weeds. What's happening at the end? The, the harvest is happening, and the, the weeds and the wheat are being separated. Now, this is very important because in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this is very important because this is one of those challenge verses that say, well, you see, he's waiting for everybody to just choose their way to salvation. No, that's not what it means. Compare that to the parable. The point is that the Lord is waiting for all the seeds that he planted to sprout so that they can be harvested. That's the great soul harvest at the end of the age. It's not he's waiting for all, like all like every single person to reach repentance. Well, that's impossible. That that was already impossible starting with Cain because Cain didn't repent. He he died unrepentant, and so did his whole his whole lineage. Judas died unrepentant. So it can't possibly mean all. It's who is Peter talking to? He's talking to the elect the people who have been chosen by God to be saved, but haven't yet come to Christ consciously. It hasn't sprouted in their life yet. 
the seed of faith. It doesn't mean it won't. It just means there's a timing for everything. You look in your own life when you became born again, when you came back to Christ, there was a, it was a moment that happened. That was when this, just like a seed goes boop and it sprouts. It's the same thing. That's why all these metaphors are used constantly. So, you know, it's about waiting for the seeds to sprout. There's a great harvest at the end of the age that separates the elect and the not elect. The seeds that were planted that were good and the seeds that were planted that were not good. This is why we proclaim the gospel. We don't try to convert people. Nobody, there's no scripture that says go out and convert people like the Muslims have in their Quran. The scriptures say go proclaim the gospel. It's gospel is the living water, right? So the what what does the seed need to sprout? The seed needs water. When you put water on a seed, what does it go do? It sprouts. If it's a healthy seed. So seeds that are healthy and that God has planted unconditionally, but nevertheless he chose those seeds, those seeds will hear the word of the Lord and will will bear fruit, just like the parable of the sower. That's why we proclaim the gospel. We just tell it like it is. We don't water it down. We don't change it. We don't try to convert anybody. You just proclaim it, and it will do its job. The Holy Spirit will do its job, his job, through the gospel. And and that's what the whole point is. And so ultimately, we just have to see these themes coming over and over again between the elect and non-elect. Now look at the next one, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. That's the labors in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Pay attention to that part. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages. That's another important word. Beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. This is an interesting parallel to the parable of the sower, by the way. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. That's an important statement. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. There's so much in this parable that ties a lot of the previous things we just talked about together. First off, we all know that Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. If you sin, then God pays you in wages through death. The soul that sins shall die. But that's why we have Jesus. 
because we get eternal life and forgiveness through him. So if the wages of sin is death, then what is the wages of salvation? It's eternal life. This whole parable is about getting paid wages so that they aren't standing idle and they get lost to the day, that the day is lost. Who is paying the wages? God is doing the work. God is paying the wages. Now he, this is again, it's so much, so much is in these parables is really astounding. When we talked about there's predestination and participation, those things aren't mutually exclusive. God is paying, God is paid for our sins, right? He, he's paying our wages of salvation through Christ Jesus. We get eternal life. And yet, at the same time, we have a calling to live here. We have things to do in the vineyard. We have a life to live and participate in. But nonetheless, who is paying the wages? God is paying the wages. At the same time, it ties to this whole idea of waiting for the harvest to come, waiting for all to come to repentance. All, in parentheses, being the elect, the chosen elect. Not everybody in the single world, because that's impossible. There's plenty of people that have been lost. In fact, most people have been lost. So that's not what that's saying. That's not what 2 Peter 3.9 is saying. It's about all the elect to finally come into fruition. All the people that God has chosen to exist and to save, those people. Some people were very much in the beginning, right? Whether in the beginning of their lives and they've been, you know, hard at work Christians their entire lives. And some people are like the thief on the cross in the 11th hour, like in this parable. But God is merciful that way. That's how he reveals his glory, by saving even the person right on the 11th hour and being merciful to them, right? And this parable, it shows the complaint, right? Some people say, well, you know, it's not fair for somebody to be saved like that in the 11th hour and they get to live a whole life of sin. Well, why? Do you envy them? If so, that's not right because we know as born-again Christians that we don't want to sin. We don't want to live in that world. You don't, you don't get any pleasure from that world. Sure, we're tempted to sin because we have that memory of our old selves, but we don't want to live like that. We want people to be out of that world, so there's nothing to envy. Another way to look at this is, is another tangent in Christ's parables, which is you know, he's sort of rebuking Israel, while at the same time talking about how it was a precedent to save the nations, the Gentiles. Israel was the chosen, and the Pharisees were very pompous about it, that they were the elect. But in fact, they were proclaiming something and being arrogant about it, where, you know, God rebuked them for that. Okay, God obviously had an elect, but the elect of God cared about God's commandments. The Pharisees proclaimed themselves to be the elect, the chosen, the, you know, the, the elite people, but they didn't care about God, so they were pretenders. And this is, again, going back to some future parables we'll look at where there's authentic faith versus fake faith. All the people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and knock on the door and be rejected at the end of the age. Those are the false prophets, the people who didn't care about God but proclaimed to be you know, saved and to be, you know, doing mighty works in his name. And it's the same thing in this parable. You know, the the people who are grumbling and saying, you know, these last worked only an hour and you have made them equal to us who have, have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. 
Now, from the parable of the sower, remember what scorching heat is. It's tribulation and, and persecution, right? So, so the people who, the martyrs, the prophets, all the people who worked hard for people like us who are living today, 2,000 years, several thousand years later, that have the entire Bible, that have all of history and context at our disposal. That's a luxury that people didn't have for thousands of years. We have the the internet. We can you can learn the Bible really quickly and, and pay attention to other people commenting on it. Knowledge will increase, right? All those things are luxuries, and it allows people to to benefit from the massive amount of suffering and persecution that befell early Christians. But if God only gave salvation to to only those people, how would his glory be shown? This parable shows that the glory of God is revealed by saving even those people who, none of us first off deserve anything, but in a sense, people who deserve less, quote unquote, would be those 11th hour people, the thief on the cross. And yet, because God is merciful, he reveals his glory by saving them. And that's the whole point. But at the, but at the same time, who is doing the choosing? So this, this parable is very much about God doing the work because he is choosing the laborers. He's the one choosing laborers. You have to pay attention to that. He's the one paying the wages. Remember, wages of sin is death. So what's the opposite of death? Life. What wages do we get through Christ? We get salvation. We get eternal life as our wages. So he's the one paying the wages. He's the one choosing the laborers. He's the one orchestrating this whole thing. People are grumbling about it. He's the one bringing them to reward people at the end of the day. What's the end of the day? That's the Bema judgment. That's the the final judgment, but it's the judgment for believers too, where we get our rewards. So this is painting a picture of that final moment where we're all lining up at the end of the day, meaning the end of the age. And we're going to be rewarded for the things that we did and with the things that we we didn't do in a sense. So we'll be made known everything. So all these things are coming together. Now look at the next one. This was really simple. This is the net, the parable of the net in Matthew 13, uh, verses 47 through 70. This one's uh, 50, sorry. This one's a lot shorter, but again, it, it adds to the mosaic. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you throw a net into the water, and people were fishermen, you know, they, they knew these metaphors and these parables because they were very relatable. And again, certain things we can't understand, but God uses the physical world to reveal in a secondary way things that we can't perceive. We don't know what unconditional election is like because we can't do that. But we can get pretty darn close to understanding it through these types of metaphors, like putting your hand in a seed pouch, picking whatever seeds you have, and throwing them and they land wherever. Right? Or throwing a net in the sea where are you looking to see, oh, I'm going to get that fish because that one looks good, that one looks bad. No, you're throwing the net into the sea, into time and space, right? And you bring back both the good and the bad. And 
then you sort through the good and the bad. So that's the same thing with unconditional election. So we have some parables that show unconditional election, which is which is this process of God choosing who he's going to save and who he's not going to save before time, unconditionally, in a, in a condition that we can't imagine because we don't have context for that. And you have parables like the labors in the vineyard where it's talking specifically about the elect, where how God is dealing with them, how he's the one choosing you and paying you and rewarding you at the end. Then you have parables like the weeds among the wheat, where it's clear that there's good and bad, just like the net. Now, the great banquet and the marriage feast are two more parables in this whole theme of the elect and unelect. And there's some more after this, but these two are somewhat related. One of them is in Luke 14. The other one's in uh, Matthew 22. So I'm just going to read both of them and then we'll we'll kind of jump back in between both. So the first one's the great banquet. It's in Luke 14. And they're kind of related, kind of similar, but but they're also kind of different, which is uh, which is what's very interesting. So the parable of the great banquet. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you have a when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there there it is again, the resurrection of the just, where it's tied to some sort of reward, just like the labors in the vineyard. But who is resurrected at the resurrection of the just? The chosen elect, the people who God chose to save. Let's move on. Luke 14, verse 15 and onward. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I do and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now this is this is very important. You know, first and foremost, the main thing here, the context, it's he's talking to who is he talking to? He's talking to first century Jews, Hebrews, who basically knew the prophets, knew the history of Israel as the chosen people, but a history that was rife with excuses. Israel would say, you know, one thing with God, but then they would go and have all kinds of idols and idolatry and, and excuses not to follow God, even though they were supposedly the chosen people. And they were in the sense that they were chosen for a purpose so that the Gentiles could be saved, 
Now there's a remnant of, so being chosen, and this is <laughs> what I'm about to talk about is being chosen and being elected to different things, right? In the parable of the marriage feast, this is what we see. So let's look at that and then we'll come back to this idea. Parable of the wedding feast. This is Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. I wonder who those two could be. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed these murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Hmm. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding feast to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. This is interesting. So the wedding ha- so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then the king came in to look at the guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we go. For many are called, but few are chosen. So there's a lot going on in these two parables. And one of the the first things that's obvious is this dichotomy between being chosen, which obviously refers to Israel, but then there were many in Israel who, who ended up being judged and destroyed and being wicked and reprobate even though Israel was the chosen nation. So what does that mean? Well, there's there's many who are called, but few are chosen, right? Israel was called, but out of Israel, there was a, a tiny remnant of people who were chosen actually to survive the history that God had ordained for that nation, to bring about the cross, to bring about salvation for the Gentiles and all that, uh, you know, the whole plan of salvation. So many are called, but few are chosen. Compare this to Cain, you know, when he was given a chance to do good, when Abel and Cain presented their sacrifices and Cain, you know, didn't bring something that was very pleasing. It was just like some grass, some, some plants that he had around his garden, whereas Abel brought, you know, the firstborn of his flock, which is, again, that's a type for Christ. But Cain, Cain's sacrifice was he could care less and God rebuked him for it. And he, and he said, you know, why, if you don't do good, aren't you going to be accepted if you do well? But did Cain repent? No, he didn't repent. Even when he, when he killed his brother and God accused him of it, he said, listen, you, you know, you killed your brother. Your, your, bro- your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I can hear your brother's blood. Cain did not repent. He thought about himself. He said, well, now... People are going to kill me if you've cursed me. And so God, what did God do? He put a mark on Cain to protect him. So Cain was given a chance to repent multiple times. Did he take the chance? No, because he wasn't chosen. He was called, but he wasn't chosen. 
Why is why did God ordain that? To show that without God interfering and influencing us, that we're incapable of making that choice, even if we're called. Now, called in this sense doesn't refer to the called that we talked about where the Father calls and draws and, and predestines. This is talking about just a general calling, like Israel was called as a nation. But was everybody in Israel saved? No, quite the contrary. Very few were saved, just like the parable of the sower. I don't know, again, if it's 25%, but it's a very small remnant, probably much smaller than 25%. The rejection of Israel set the precedent for the Gentiles to be saved. There had to be a chosen nation that would reject God, so there would be a legal precedent to save the the entire world. And that's exactly what happened. That's what these two parables are about. Now, they have differences. The first parable is more about excuses and and sort of, you know, rebuking Israel for for their history of excuses to not come to the banquet, right? And they always have their their worldly idols and idolatry that distracted them from eating, right? Taste and see that the Lord is good, from eating the, the bread of life, the word of the Lord that was the words of eternal life, the, the, the living water, all those metaphors of food and, and sustenance that God gave through Jesus, through his word. They didn't want that. They wanted the worldly things. So they came up with excuses. And the second parable has that as well, but it kind of goes more into detail. It talks about the father being a king and the son. Obviously, we know who that's talking about. The father, the king, gave the kingdom to the son. That's what this whole history is about. These parables, as short as they are, they sum up the entire history of of our history, which is so fascinating. And they talk about killing the servants. Who were the servants? The prophets that God sent to tell the people to invite them to the banquet, to the final day (laughs) where everything will be made right. And what happened? They reject. They came up with excuses, idolatry. They even killed those prophets, right? And that's true. We know that from the scriptures. That's what the, the parable was talking about. But it's also talking about the elect, the people who are chosen. Who, who went out and chose people? The people who initially did, were unclean, right? The, the homeless, the beggars, the poor. All these people were, were supposedly unfit to come to a banquet. And if you think about it in context of Israel being the chosen people, and you have people who are not chosen and unclean, now the Gentiles become redeemed and clean. They're in the banquet. So do you see how all these things, themes play into this idea? And it's, God is sending out his messengers to choose and bring in people. It's not, hey, I'm going to put a sign up and then whoever decides to come and see it, they'll, they'll come to my banquet. It's he's impacting that outcome. He's bringing the people. The father draws and the son draws people, all people to himself, all kinds of people. Right, And so, who's doing the work? God is doing the work. He's setting the banquet. He's inviting the guests. Now, there's this really interesting verse, which I mentioned in in the second parable, the marriage feast. This is verse 10. And it says, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, whom they found both the bad and the good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is really important. And, And, you know, later... The, the figure in the parable, which we assume to be Christ, he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, this is really an interesting thing because we know throughout the scriptures that 
Christ gives us a robe of righteousness, right? So if we look at Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Very clear language in parallel to the parable of the marriage feast, where how did you get in here without a garment? So when the when the messengers brought the bad and the good to the wedding feast, and one of the people that was spotted didn't have a garment on, he made it to the feast proclaiming to be, you know, a Christian proclaiming to be saved, doing many mighty works in Jesus' name, and yet being a false teacher and false prophet. How did you get in here without a garment? What's the garment? It's the robe of righteousness. How do you get the robe of righteousness? By having an authentic faith in Christ. And we'll come back more to this in a couple more parables, but it's about having authentic faith. You know, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. It is, it is not about how perfectly you obey the law, but rather what's in your heart. Do you have authentic faith or do you claim to have authentic faith? Did you get, did you try to weasel your way into the banquet by pretending or do you have a robe of righteousness because you put your trust and faith in Christ? So all these themes about God's doing the work, God's setting the banquet, God's choosing, God's bringing the people his chosen, he's getting rid of the people who are inauthentic, who were never, you know, never there to begin with. They were just always predestined to be unsaved. The, the bad and the good. When you brought the bad and the good, they were already bad. You see that? When he brought the bad and the good into the banquet, he didn't bring the good and then they turned bad. They were already bad. That's the point. Just like the parable of the, the net the wheat, the the sower, the wheat and the tares. It's this constant theme of there are people who are bad and there are people who are good. Now, we are all bad in some sense, right? We're all totally depraved. But if you have the Holy Spirit because you're elect and you're chosen and God's chosen to reveal himself to you, then you're saved. You are clothed in a robe of righteousness and you are righteous in that sense. You're, you're justified. Just like everybody in, in scriptures who is justified by faith. So with that, we have another sort of three parables in the theme of finding what was lost. And these, I believe, touch on this whole idea of election and being elect in a very specific way. And you have three parables. You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and the prodigal son. So let's just go through them, and we'll just read all three of them, and then we'll we'll chat about a few things. So the first one's the lost sheep, and that's in Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. The parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the parable of lost sheep, just really quick, we'll come back to this, but very quick in John 10, verse 27, 
right away. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That was John 10 verse 27 through 30. So we'll keep this in mind, but the sheep are whose? Whose are the sheep? They belong to Christ. They always belong to Christ. They aren't sheep that he just found in the wilderness and he's just kind of bringing them. They're, they always belong to Christ. One of them got lost and he got them back. The lost coin, which is in Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. Or that a woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, the lost coin. Did the woman own the coin before that? Keep this in mind. She did own the coin. It was hers. It wasn't like a random coin that she found or a coin that somebody had left in her room and then she found it. Now it's hers and she gets some free money. No, it was something that she had before. This is really important. And the prodigal son. Now the prodigal son, we're all familiar with the prodigal son. This is a bit of a longer parable. And it starts in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of prosperity that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, this is so so telling, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the the best robe. There's that robe of righteousness again. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. There's the wedding feast. There's the great banquet. Those other things that we talked about previously. Verse 24. For this... My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, just like the coin and the sheep. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother was come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was, he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours, but when the son of yours came, who was devout, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Very famous parable. A lot going on there. You can see a lot of themes about redemption, robe of righteousness. The father sees the, the, the son a long ways off. And what does the father do? He initiates. He initiates. Now, you could argue, say, well, you know, first it was the, the son's job or free will that chose to, you know, repent and come back. And then, then God responded to him. But is that really consistent with everything we've discussed? Is that consistent with scripture, with the father drawing and choosing and electing and Christ drawing and the Holy Spirit sanctifying? No, it's not. So ultimately you can't read too much into it, but it does paint the picture of the robe of righteousness, the wedding feast at the end, the the harvest, right? Some people were already born again and they got jealous of the other ones. They, 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 you know, like the laborers in the vineyards who worked a little harder than the ones who came to faith later on their backs in a sense, right? And so it paints all these themes about faith and salvation, but really what it shows is along the lines with the lost sheep and the lost coin, this idea of being lost. All of these three parables have three, a sequence of of three things. Something was owned, but presumably in the past at some point in time. So there was union. Then it was lost, right? Or we could say rebellion in some sense, right? Metaphorically. And then it was redeemed back to union or salvation. So if we look at that, we see we were chosen before time, unconditional election. We were chosen to be Christ's people by the Father. Union. Then time and space became a reality. What happened? Adam and Eve fell. There was rebellion. And then we got redeemed. To redeem is to purchase back. We got redeemed at the cross. That's These parables are not only fitting for our own lives, but they're history in a nutshell. Between the point that we were chosen unconditionally to be saved and to be with Christ, through the fall, and through redemption. In the same way with our own lives. We're born. We don't know if we're saved or not when we're born. It takes coming to Christ consciously. And again, it's the Spirit that guides that process, but nevertheless, we experience it as a, as a choice, as a, as a conscious experience. So we're born, we rebel, right? And then we get redeemed. So all these things get tied in together in these parables. And what does that, that teach you? That teach you that, that teaches you that there's always been an elect. There's always been a people that God's chosen that he's going to reveal his plan through. The lost sheep, again, they aren't sheep in the wilderness and Christ is just kind of finding a sheep and then bringing it back to his herd. No. The sheep were always his. They were given to him. All that the Father gives me, I will keep. He's not going to lose what the Father gives him. The sheep know his voice. 
the, the goats who are going to get separated from the sheep at the end of the day, at the end of the age, they don't know his voice. They're stubborn. The sheep follow. Do you see the, the parallels and the metaphors? Chosen, not chosen. These are throughout scripture. Now we got a couple more, and these are all in themes of having authentic faith. And again, it's it's distinguishing between this idea of claiming to be saved or claiming to be, you know, doing works in, in Christ's name or being, you know, some sort of representative, but but not really having your heart in Christ. These are all the false prophets, false teachers of today and of the past that have been coming in God's name, but really just pretending. And there's so many parables in in that theme of, of assurance of salvation, meaning testing yourself and realizing, okay, is my faith genuine? And making a distinction between genuine faith and people who are just pretending. And that's why it's important to know, because again, once saved, always saved, doesn't mean claiming to be saved and then you're saved. And then you, you can do whatever you want. Because there's plenty of people who have inauthentic faith. And there, Christ addressed that through his parables, through his teachings, on the end times, in, in many places. And even the Old Testament is full of God rebuking false prophets. So the first um, parable in that theme of assurance of salvation and authentic faith is the parable of the faithful and the wicked servant. And that's in Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51. And it goes like this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. That's what it's all about. It's about the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the final judgment, the lake of fire, who's going to go in there? It's going to, the hypocrites are going to go. The people like the Pharisees who claim to be the chosen ones, but could care less about God. And there are many versions of Pharisees today. So even though, so this is two things. This is about the hypocrites and having authentic faith. And how do we know, how do we know if we have authentic faith? It's about having assurance of salvation. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so. So being prepared. Again, everything's predestined, but we're constantly told by Christ and by the apostles, by scripture, to prepare, to be vigilant, to embrace this life and to embrace the moment and to live our faith out. So how do you know if you're saved? Well, that's assurance of salvation. Eternal security is dealing with the overall sky view of the plan of God. We have eternal security because God is doing the work. When God changes your heart, it's forever. He doesn't go back on his promise. You can't undo what God does in your life. With that being said, that's the predestination side of it. See how this works? Because there's two things. There's predestination and participation. Predestination is from God's view. Participation is from our view. They are not mutually exclusive. We can participate and things can also be predestined. And very much God asks us to be part to participate in our reality, in our lives. 
So the assurance of salvation goes along with eternal security. Eternal security is God's role, and he's created that. But assurance of salvation is what we do through prayer, through fasting, through all these different things that we do, spreading the gospel, witnessing, you know, studying the word, having fellowship, going to church, helping the poor. These are the things that help assurance of salvation, that give you a sense of, yeah, I'm like I'm being honest with myself. I'm not claiming to be saved, but then, you know, going out and partying every weekend. That's what it's all about. So you're not a hypocrite, right? And so that's very important. And you also have another one that's actually two, two or three more that are very much in line with this theme of preparation. And the next one would be the friend at midnight, which is another short parable. It's in Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will... Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. It was a, it was a very big deal to be hospitable in in the Middle East. It's huge shame if you couldn't be hospitable. So this is a big deal for them. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So let's keep this one in mind with the next one, the persistent widow. This is in Luke 18. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice (laughs) so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will will not God give justice to his elect? There it is from Christ's word. Who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So again, these, the the faithful versus wicked servant, the the friend at midnight, the persistent widow, it's, it's all about this idea of participation. A lot of themes, a lot of parables use this theme called the lesser to the greater, which is using a comparison to illustrate a greater truth. In this case, the, the judge who doesn't fear God or man still gave justice to the widow because she's so persistent. Now imagine how much greater God's justice will be for his elect, the people he's chosen, because God is perfect and he's all loving and he's merciful. So if a wicked judge can can give in to perseverance, what more does God do for his elect? Now, does this teach you a works-based salvation where it's up to us to bend God's hand with you know fervent prayer and, and fasting and effort? No, it doesn't at all. It's not about working hard for your prayers to get answered because that ultimately says that God responds to you. God's not responding to us even though we think that because we're self-absorbed. It's about God's love for his elect. That's the whole point of this parable. 
that there's an elect, (laughs) number one, and that number two, God is merciful. And number three, it echoes this idea that, listen, even though you're chosen, even though they're your life is predestined, engage with this life. That's the mystery. Engage with this life. Take it on. You know, grab it by the horns. Live the, the salvation you've been given. So it, it's encouraging us to participate, even though there's an elect. Just That's the two themes you see. There's elect, but then there's also the persistent widow. So how does that work? Well, again, it's a mystery. But it's not for us to draw a line and say, well, you know, it's still our free will here and, and God's will there. No, it's not. There's an elect. Things are predestined. And we are to participate and be persistent and persevere and strive, fight the good fight, all that good stuff. Then you have the ten virgins, which is in Matthew 25. And this is the parable of ten virgins, which is, again, about preparation. And this one has a lot of other themes, too, with the end times and oil being a a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So it goes... Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to the to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at the mid but at midnight, there was a cry, "Here is the bridegroom! Come out and meet him!" Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. There's the feast again. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, this is, you know, this is parallel. This parable is parallel to the people who are claiming to work miracles in Christ's name at the end of the age and wanting to come into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord, do we not, you know, exercise many demons and work miracles in in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Not, I knew you, but, you know, I stopped knowing you because you lost your salvation. I, I never knew you. Never means never. Christ was always alive before time began. So if he never knew them, that means they were never chosen. If he's chosen you from the beginning of time, then he's known you. Just like the sheep know his voice, he knows his sheep. Do you see how that works? It ha- it, they go hand in hand. Right, and so this par- this parable reflects that which 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 um, Jesus just talked about in Matthew twenty four, a chapter earlier to this about Lord, Lord, open to us. But there's other parable, there's other parallels too. In Psalm one nineteen, verse one hundred five, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word is the lamp. Holy Spirit is a, a metaphor for oil and anointing throughout the Bible. In Luke four eighteen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is Jesus talking. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the, to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, 
to set the lib- to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay, well, we know that in Acts 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Right? He went about doing good and healing in all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Well, anointing is done with oil, but it represents the Holy Spirit. And we know that from history because in 1 Samuel, when Saul was anointed, uh, or is this, yeah, I think this is Saul. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon, oh, sorry, David, rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So as soon as he was anointed physically with the oil, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So the oil and the Spirit are very much paralleled throughout Scripture. So the ten virgins preparing and not having enough oil, what is that reminiscent of? That's the parable of the sower, the people who had faith, but they either got choked by the cares of this world, they got distracted, they ran out of, you know, resources, emotional resources, or persecution. Now we know in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. Many will say, Lord, Lord, please open the door, but they were all pretenders and hypocrites. There'll be a great falling away. All these things are going to happen. People are going to get lost by fairy tales and and doctrines of men. Does that mean that losing your oil means losing your Holy Spirit, losing your salvation? No. It means, first off, for the elect, test yourselves, because the people who reprobate could care less about parables. They're not even going to care about this, the lesson in this parable. It's more for us to remember that there's going to be people who claim to be believers but they're not actually believers. So to the chosen, remember, many are called, few are chosen. To the chosen elect, it's a it's a wake-up call to test ourselves for assurance of faith. Am, am I really embracing the faith that I was given and the gift that I was given? Am I walking the walk to the best of my ability? That's what that's for. It's not to say that, you know, you might lose your Holy Spirit, you might lose your oil, no, it's that it's comparing the people who had the Holy Spirit to the people who pretended to have the Holy Spirit, to pretended to being saved. The people who had the the five virgins who were wise were saved. They were invited to the feast. The other ones had oil, but it wasn't the true oil that would last. They didn't have enough. God is going to give you enough to give you perseverance. That's the perseverance of the saints. If He's saving you, He'll keep you saved. The ones who pretend, they were never saved to begin with. They had the external appearance of being saved. They had the works, but you're not saved by works. Here's another thing. There's a comparison of the church being the bride, and that's that's throughout Scripture, right? There's this wedding feast of the Lamb, marriage supper of the Lamb, the church is the bride. Well, here's a good question for you. Does a bride prepare for her wedding because... She's hoping to be accepted and loved by the groom? No. She prepares for the wedding day because she's already been accepted and loved. The groom asked her to be married, presented the covenant, and so she said yes, and she's preparing for that day. 
This is very important. So you know what the outcome is going to be. In a sense, quote unquote, that's predestined. Now, we can't control things in our physical world, but in the story, in a story setting, in a metaphor, we know that that outcome is happening once you've said yes. Can you prepare for it? Yes. So you can have preparation and predestination together. The bride isn't preparing because she's trying to be accepted. Now, we have two more parables, and that's about it. But they're, they're pretty interesting. The, the next one is the parable of the unforgiving servant, and that's in Matthew uh, 18. And so I'm just going to go through them, and then we'll, we'll see what they have to offer. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot, by the way. I think a talent was something like 70 kilograms. I could be wrong about that, but it was a lot. But pay attention to that amount. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported this to their master and all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you would not forgive and you should not have and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, first things first, the, the wicked servant or the unforgiving servant had 10,000 talents that he owed the master. And the servant who owed the other servant had only 100 denarii. So, so it's like the parable's teaching us, listen, be mindful of, of the log in your own eye, right? You have so many sins and God has forgiven you for that. Why can't you be forgiving with other people for less things, right? God has forgiven you the whole of your sins, which are 10,000 talents, a lot. And, you know, you can't forgive your neighbor for, for some offense that they did. So that's an important lesson from this parable. Now, should we take it literally in the sense that if you don't forgive someone, or if there's somebody you haven't forgiven, by the end of the age, you're going to get thrown into hell? No, absolutely not. The parable, again, is telling you to test yourself, to have assurance of salvation. It's telling the elect to test themselves. It's giving, it's one of those lessons where it's like, listen, you know, I've forgiven, I've forgiven you. Now I want you to embrace forgiveness and actively go and forgive your neighbor. Participate in this life. The reprobate, the people who aren't saved, they don't care about the parable. They don't even understand what Jesus is saying. They don't care. They can't hear. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Remember, you can have predestination and also be encouraged to participate. The bride can have said yes to the wedding and prepare diligently to look her best for that day. God addressed both the elect and 
the naughty life throughout Scripture. In the famous line in Deuteronomy 30, 19, where he says, choose life, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Is, is that a threat? How do you understand that line? Are you reading libertarian French Revolution free will into that line? That God is like hoping we'll choose life? Or is there something else going on? Is it a threat? Is it a hope? Or is it a prophecy? When God speaks, he's prophetic. He's speaking to the elect and to the reprobate. The reprobate could care less. They're just going to get angry, just like they did with Jesus when he spoke in parables. The Pharisees hated him. And those who were chosen heard him, and they marveled at his teachings. So in that same way, he splits between the two, always. Because when he speaks, he's prophesying. When, when God says, choose life that you may live, he's not saying, man, I hope you choose life. Whoever chooses life, they're going to live. No, he's prophesying. His words are the words of eternal life, the, the living water that touches the seeds that he's planted, and those seeds begin to sprout when they hear the, the word, just like the parable of the sower. So it's how you read these things is very important. So the unforgiving servant is not, it's not this thing where, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't forgive people or you need to work really hard. It's up to you. No, it's just, it's painting a picture along with the other things that we've talked about where you have predestination, but part of that is participating. You have to live your moment, life moment by moment. Everything about Christ's life, again, was predestined, but he lived his life moment by by moment. Forgiving. Now, here's another one too. Does this does this parable teach universalism? That's a that's a question. Universalism is the teaching that everybody gets saved eventually. Forgiving the the unforgiving servant, did that mean that God forgave him and he's going to put him in jail and there's sort of this purgatory and you know, when he and he's done paying his debt, he's going to be released and everybody's you know, everybody's going to be saved. That's not what this is about. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard it said that it, you have heard, this is love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall no, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God gave everybody life. What do you have in this parable? You have an unforgiving servant. You have somebody that was forgiven in the sense that he was you know, not killed. Right? God made it rain on the just and unjust. He let Nebuchadnezzar live his life. But in the end, he had to bring justice because, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was evil and all the other people who were reprobate were evil, and God had to destroy them. He gave them life. He wasn't obligated to give them life, but they had to serve a purpose. And so that in and of itself is merciful, to endure their wickedness for the sake of his plan. He was very merciful in giving the wicked life. But the wicked didn't do anything with that life. They were given life, but they didn't forgive their servant. They didn't treat others 
as they wanted to be treated. They didn't act in accordance with God's law, and so they were thrown in jail. Now, in this case, jail is a metaphor for Gehenna. It's for the end of the age. It's for the punishment. I don't believe in eternal torment, so that's a whole other study, but the wicked are destroyed. In either case, it's not teaching universalism. It is showing that God has people who he saved and he doesn't save. It's showing that God is merciful to the wicked and to the righteous, obviously. It's teaching us to test ourselves, the elect, to look and see why don't we forgive others when we've already been forgiven. So it's it's a very dynamic parable. It's got a lot going on in it. Now, the last parable that I'm going to cover today is the ten talents or gold coins, depending on which gospel you read it in. But um, this is in Matthew 25, and it starts in verse 14, the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more for you. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. That's an interesting way of putting it. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, for to everyone who has will be given, and he who have, he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant of the outer darkness. There it is again. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then it talks about the final judgment. So what's going on in this parable? There's there's so much going on. And, you know, talents can be gifts, treasures, things that God's given us, life itself. All these things are gifts that God has given us. To invest those things is to bear fruit for the master, right? We have to bear fruit. That is about having authentic faith. How do you know if somebody's a false prophet or not? You judge them by their fruit. You judge yourself by your fruit. Do you have fruits of faith in your life? Are you more patient? Are you wanting to read scripture? Are you helping the poor? Are you having fellowship with others? There are fruits of the faith, and that's how you test yourself. There's two ways to interpret this parable. The first way would be from, you know, like a free will perspective and say, well, Jesus is talking to everyone, and he just expects them to kind of, you know, free will their way through it. 
and you use what God's given you. So you got to, you got to make the choice. But again, the people who wrote these texts did not believe in libertarian. That wasn't even a thing back then. Libertarian free will really came into its shining moment through the French Revolution, through the Enlightenment, through the Renaissance even. The real way to interpret this is Jesus showing justice and mercy. As usual, he shows justice to the people who were never chosen and mercy to the people that were, right? What he says, he's talking to the elect and to the unelect. The people who are not chosen could care less about his parables. The people who are chosen, they're going to hear his parables and, and really like it's going to convict their heart and say, man, you know, which servant am I? Am I like the servant who is the slothful servant who didn't trust God, who got complacent and didn't use what he's given me? Or am I like the ones who invested his gifts and bear, bore fruit, right? So the elect will respond. Everyone who hears is given life. Everybody who's alive has been given life. But the, the difference is the reprobate did nothing with it. The reprobate were, were created for a temporary purpose. That's why they have a temporary existence. The elect were created for eternal purpose, to be God's people for eternity. That's why they have an eternal purpose and they're saved. And so ultimately, what is this ta- talking about? Well, it could be talking about the elect and the unelect, in the sense that those who were given life, everybody was given life, they were given talents, right? But the unelect didn't do anything with it, and so they were thrown away, obviously. But the ones who did do something with it because of the work of the Holy Spirit, they were even more rewarded, right? They were even more rewarded in a merciful and generous way. Another perspective is the Bema judgment, right? This could be talking about, and certainly the context would be that because the final judgment, he's talking about the final judgment. He had Matthew 24 was signs of the end time. So it could be very well that he's talking about the Bema judgment where we receive everything that, that we've, you know, been destined to receive as rewards for this life. And now the question is, how can we be rewarded if everything's predestined? Well, I'm going to cover that in, <laughs> in a future episode, not this one, but there is a reasonable explanation. So ultimately, we're, none of us are due anything. None of us are due any benefits, any rewards. We are due what God gave us, what he chooses to give us. And God's given all of us life. And those he's chosen to save will be saved. And if he's chosen to give you certain failures and certain successes, he will reward you and punish you for those particular things. It's not up to you, right? So ultimately, we just take whatever we've been given with the underlying assumption that the person who's giving it to us is infinitely wise and just and intelligent. So ultimately, this parable could be in many ways, but these last parables, the ten talents, the unforgiving servant, the ten virgins, the persistent widow, the friend at midnight, the faithful and the wicked servant. What are all these things talking about? Well, they're talking about being persistent, about participating in God's plan. Yes, the kingdom of heaven was predestined. The cross was predestined. Jesus' life, burial, resurrection, everything about Christ's life, his return, the final judgment, that's all predestined. There's no shadow of a doubt that all these things have been predestined. 
But just because something is predestined doesn't mean we can't participate in it. When you make an event, you predetermine the outcome, and then you invite people to the event, and it unfolds. You can participate in something that's predestined. This is the mystery of our lives. And the parables that we went over today, these 13 parables, they all showed that. They showed God choosing. That's definitely a huge theme. Election, unconditional election. The elect, saving the elect, destroying the reprobate, right? They show reward for the elect, punishment for those who aren't elect. They also show reward in the sense of the Bema judgment. Again, it's, it's the reward for all the believers and the, the losing of rewards that we could have had. But again, you have to try to find line with that, with the whole free will thing. And we'll get into that in a future episode. And lastly, the parables all teach us to have encouragement. And in this predestined plan that God has made, we still have to participate. We still have to have our own assurance of salvation through being like the persistent widow or the friend at midnight or being like the, uh, the faithful servant, the, the five wise virgins that had the oil. All these things tell us to test ourselves, to test our own faith, to, to constantly, it's, it's there not to scare you. It's there to push you, to keep pushing you, to be authentic in your faith, to participate and that's the mystery. That's the mystery of the truth we live in, with it, which is predestination and participation. Again, the bride does not get ready in the hopes that she will get chosen. The bride gets ready because she was chosen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because you've been chosen. So it's it's an encouragement. It's It's trying to motivate you to embrace what God has given in you, which is life and gifts and talents and a calling. So take it on. Yes, make choices. Go out there and do the best you can. Pray every step of the way. Pray to God and and keep step with God. But when things happen that you don't understand, remember that everything is predestined, that everything has a purpose, that God works everything for the good, that evil has a purpose, that Christ's life was predestined and we're being conformed to Christ's life, that Scripture teaches of elect and those elect have eternal security. All these things are throughout the things we've talked about. So I hope all this has been a blessing for you. I, I think parables are fascinating. We could probably talk several more hours about them. There's several good books on parables. Um, I really encourage you to, to look into them if you like parables. I certainly went over a cursory view over them. I don't think I went very deep with these parables at all. But there are obvious themes, and I hope you've seen them. Maybe you agree with some of the things I said, maybe not. But it's undeniable that election and predestination and reprobates are a consistent theme throughout the parables. It's undeniable that the kingdom is predestined, that Christ's life was predestined, and that these things are also reflected in the parables. So I'm curious to know what you think of these parables. So you can write in the comments below or just send me an email. My email is tutor at danceoflife.com. I'm always interested to know what other people think about parables. They're such a fascinating topic for me. But either way, next week we'll go into the frequently asked questions and wrestling with the election, some hard questions that I hope that I can answer in my own way, how I answer them for myself. 
um, and hopefully give you some strength in your own beliefs. But I hope this has been a blessing for you. hope you've enjoyed it. God bless. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you in the next episode.